Some years ago, there was a nation that found itself in extremely difficult times. It had previously been a wealthy, powerful, just and moral nation, uh, a nation that served as a light to other nations. It, it, led the area, uh, it led the way in areas like education, economics, innovation, as well as human rights, justice, ethics, and morality. It, it was a nation in which people from all backgrounds, races, uh, uh, ethnicities, found that they could flourish and thrive. Uh, of course, it wasn't perfect. It had its problems and challenges, but it, but it was a nation in which every citizen enjoyed a great deal of freedom and prosperity and security. But over time, this nation began to lose its way. They, they became fat and proud and entitled. They, they began to take their freedom for granted and shun responsibility. They abandoned common sense lost their moral compass and began to embrace all kinds of foolishness. And even though they had been a light to other nations and led the way in a lot of areas, yet they began to adopt the, the ideas, customs, and values of the surrounding nations and cultures. And, and that took them far from the principles and values that had previously set them apart from the rest of the world. Despite this despite many numerous very clear warnings from God. As most of you have probably guessed, I'm referring to the nation of Israel centuries before the time of Christ. God had given them both promises and warnings. Promises. Uh, if you follow my ways and stay true to me and to my commandments, you will flourish. Uh, but if you wander away from me and my ways and my commandments and, and follow the values and customs of the surrounding godless pagan nations, instead of flourishing and thriving, you will, you will languish. You will shrivel up and decline and you will ultimately be overrun and conquered by other nations. The, the nations surrounding ancient Israel had practices that, that were abhorrent to the nation of Israel, at least initially. In those days, there were no atheist nations. Every nation had their own God and their own religion, and, and for most of them, if not all of them, sexual immorality was a central part of their religion. Prostitution was literally part of their worship rituals. And, and of course, the obvious inevitable result of prostitution being woven into the state religion was a lot of unwanted pregnancies. So, so what did they do with all uh, the resulting infants? Well, history tells us that they, they, they were sacrificed to their gods. Some religions burned infants alive as sacrifices to their gods. Naturally, it's not difficult to see how such practices led to the complete, led in the complete opposite direction of human flourishing. I mean, these kinds of practices tend to shape attitudes toward the value and dignity of human life, or, or actually result in the lack of valuing and uh, in, in the dignity of human life. Yet the nation of Israel, little by little, started going down that path until 
they eventually had collectively embraced the pagan gods of their surrounding nations along with their foolish and evil practices and values. Along the way, they were warned many, many times over and over to turn around, to turn back to God. God is merciful and forgiving, they were told. If you repent, he will forgive you and he will heal your land. God sent many messengers to the nation of Israel, or prophets as they were called. But they persisted in their pursuit of idolatry and immorality and pagan pleasures. And at one point, God speaks to them through the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah says, see if there has ever been anything like this. Look back at history and see if anything like this has ever happened. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are no gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, horror, declares the Lord. Many people, or, or excuse me, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They've abandoned the God that led to human flourishing and pursued fake, artificial gods of their own making, which obviously could, these gods could do nothing for them. They could never satisfy them, never quench their deepest thirsts, never give them what they truly needed. Broken cisterns that could hold no water. You know, you can always count on God to shoot straight with you. Uh, speaking through the prophet Hosea, God said, your evil deeds are the reason you won't return to me, your, your Lord God. And your constant craving for sex keeps you from knowing me. They abandoned God despite all his warnings, and you, you know the story. The northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by the Assyrians in 20, 722 B.C., and the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by Babylon in 605 B.C. First, Assyria conquers the northern half of Israel, and then Babylon conquers Assyria, and then Babylon conquers the southern half of Israel, which is Judah. At that time, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians after them had a policy of enslaving and forcibly relocating the people they conquered, making it next to impossible for the vanquished people ever to reform and regroup and, and rise up again as a nation. So they would take them captive and, and spread them out and, and basically end, end them as a nation or a people group. So this once powerful, flourishing nation now found themselves in exile, slaves in a godless, pagan, foreign land, their homeland completely destroyed. And for them, it's the end of the road. Life is over. What's the use of hoping, you know, believing, or even going on anymore? They're despondent, they're despairing, and they're hopeless. And I know what some of you are thinking. <laughs> Jim, it's Palm Sunday. This is, a, this is a happy day. You know, you should, be, you should have a happy message for us. Remember, you know, people waving, you know, palm branches and the triumphal entry and all that kind of stuff. I, I know. Just be patient. I'm getting there. This, this is actually the backstory 
to, to all of that. Uh, it's important to know the backstory. It, 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 I know it seems like I'm going back, back quite a ways, but I'm, I'm going to fast forward here in, in, in a few minutes. So hang in there with me. The nation of Israel has been conquered. Its people taken to a foreign land. They are despondent, despairing, and hopeless. Where is God in all of this? God had made them all these promises, but had also given them ample warnings. Yet they had allowed, them, they had allowed themselves to get to a place where they rejected their belief in both of those things, both the promises and the warnings, despite the fact that they had flourished for many years when they were observing God's ways and embracing and living out his principles and values. Many of the Psalms in the Old Testament were written during this time of defeat and exile, and they document in detail, in agonizing detail, what these people were experiencing. They, they of course, felt forgotten by God, they felt abandoned. They felt they had no future, like Psalm 137. Listen to the lyrics this songwriter penned about their sorrow in despair and despair during that time. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, which was another name for Jerusalem, the, the capital city there of their homeland, Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps for there our captors asked us for songs, you know, describing how their captors taunted them and mocked them, asking them for songs. Our, tormentor, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion, but how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my, my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Deep sorrow and regret and an intense sense of despair, believing they were beyond the hope of rescue. Yet in that dark place, they did the only thing they knew to do, they called out to God. The God they had rejected, abandoned, and pushed away, they called out to God even though they questioned whether he would ever really hear them or even be willing to answer. But what else could they do? They called out to God, and God did hear them. He was listening Despite all the evil, the idolatry, the immorality, the injustice, the violence they had committed, despite their wholesale rejection of God and his love, their collective rejection of his, of his perfect commandments and precepts, and his, his values that had, that had earlier, in better times, led them to such flourishing. Despite their rejection of all that, God's ear was eager to hear, to listen, to forgive, and to restore. God heard their cries, and he saw their suffering, and in the middle of their captivity, God gave them another promise, a very specific promise. The, the promise was this. They would have to be exiles in Babylon for 70 years, but after 70 years, something unheard of would happen. Another nation would rise up and conquer their conquerors. Another nation would come along and conquer Babylon. 
where they were in exile. And that, that's, that wasn't so unheard of. That people, con nations were conquering other nations all the time. What was unheard of is that this new conquering nation, the Medes, would be favorably predisposed toward the Israelites and allow them to return to their homeland, to become a nation once again, historically unprecedented. It could only be the hand of God. God makes this promise to them, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah just after they have been conquered and are being taken into captivity in the middle of their despondency and horror and hopelessness. God tells them this. This is what the Lord says. This is Jeremiah speaking right after they have been conquered. They're being led away to captivity. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declare the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. This is the theme verse of our church, Hope Community Church. God is going to give them a hope and a future. Despite all their detestable rebellion and the shameful things they committed, going on, Jeremiah says this, Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to this place from which I carried you into exile. And that is exactly what happened in 535 BC. The nation of Israel was allowed to begin repopulating their homeland once again. But in the meantime, they would spend 70 years as slaves in a godless, pagan nation. But toward the end of that 70 years, another prophet named Daniel, well, he's done the math. And, and he realizes, Jeremiah said, about, about 70 years ago, Jeremiah said that we'd be in captivity for 70 years. And According to my calculations, it's been about 70 years. So he starts praying and fasting and confessing his sins and the sins of his nation. In fact, I'm going to read this. And we won't read the whole thing because it's kind of lengthy. But I, I want you to hear Daniel's heart as he confesses his sin and the sins of his nation. This is a, around the year 538 B.C. Beginning at Daniel, 1, uh, Daniel 9, verse 1. This is what Daniel records. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, so the Medes had conquered the Babylonians, and now uh, Darius, son of Xerxes, was in, in control. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would uh, last for 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition. 
in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes, which is how they would mourn in those days. They put on sackcloth, cover themselves with ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, uh, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. Vanquished, conquered people generally lived in great shame and humiliation. The people of Judah and the heavens of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. But, but he, listen to what he says here. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. And he goes on like this for, for another paragraph or two, confessing his sins, but remembering God's mercy and forgiveness. And, and, uh, and then, then skipping down to verse 20, he records this. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, that's sometimes how they referred to their capital of Jerusalem, the holy hill. I'll resist the temptation to try and insert a cynical joke here. Um, while I, <laughs> thank you, Fred. Uh, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in an earlier vision, who, who in fact was the angel Gabriel, who would figure into history in many other ways, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out. From the moment you started praying, a word went out or a decree was issued from on high in the heavenly realm. God issued a decree the moment you started to pray, which I have come to tell you for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And then the angel Gabriel gives Daniel some very specific, though somewhat cryptic, prophetic information or a prediction about the future. And he mentions a few future events and predicts them with stunning detail and accuracy. This is what he says. Here's, here's the decree. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. So 77s are decreed for your people to, to basically get their act together, to, to repent of their past sins, and to, to repopulate their land and to prepare themselves and their most holy place for something new and extraordinary God is going to do. 
Now, 77s is a reference to a period of time. Some translations of the Bible use the word weeks instead of sevens. But weeks or sevens refers to, a, to units of time, and it eventually becomes obvious that, that, that it means years, a, a period of seven years or, or a period of seven weeks of years, uh, you know, weeks of years, which, which some translations say. Now, let's l- read a little bit further, and I'll kind of unpack this a little bit more. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So seven weeks of years and then 62 weeks of years before the arrival of the anointed one. And we all know who that is, right? We know who the anointed one is. Who is the anointed one? Yes, it's always the right answer in church. It's Jesus, right. Um, But here he mentions two events that are going to take place in the future. The decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which has been virtually raised to the ground, and the coming of the anointed one. Seven sevens, and then 62 sevens. Now, this is going to get really interesting. Much has already been foretold by this time about the anointed one or the Messiah before Israel had even wandered down the wrong path uh, that God, God had, before, before, they had, uh, before they even wandered down that path God had already promised that a descendant of David would rule over the kingdom of Israel forever and God maintained that promise through the prophets even when Israel was well down the path of abandoning him and going after foreign gods and even after the surrounding nations began to close in on, on them the prophets underscored at, at many times and, and in many ways that a descendant of David an anointed one would most certainly rule forever though it was becoming more and more difficult to see how that was going to happen, especially once the nation of Israel completely went out of business, right? Went bankrupt, spiritually and otherwise, and became the victim of a hostile takeover, which was determined to dismantle it and sell it for parts. I mean, they were done. A a descendant of King David ruled forever? (laughs) I mean, how is that even possible? It had to have been considered just beyond the realm of possibility, and yet the prophecy of a Messiah, which literally means promised one, was still there. A deliverer, a rescuer, a savior. Though the exact nature and mission of this coming savior was snapping much clearer, you know, much, much, uh, was snapping into focus and, and becoming much and much clearer for them given their predicament. And that most certainly had to have provide, provided the Jewish exile with just enough hope to keep looking forward, to, to, to keep their hope alive, this promised one, this rescuer. And now that we're in this predicament, it's, it's becoming maybe more clear of what this rescuer and deliverer is going to do for us. It kept their hope alive, however minuscule that hope might have been. And now, now, Here's the angel Gabriel telling the prophet Daniel that in a specified amount of time, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt, which must have seemed impossible to them. And in another specified amount of time, the anointed one is going to arrive on the scene. This is what he has said. 
so first regarding the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, or not the temple in Jerusalem, but rebuilding uh, the city of Jerusalem. Gabriel tells Daniel this, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in a time of trouble. Or, or in other words, it'll be built despite perilous times, another translation said. Now this happened, as you, most of you know, this happened under the leadership of Nehemiah, didn't it? As documented in the book of Nehemiah. Going on, he adds something very strange. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. What an unusual thing to say at this time. Wait, what? The anointed one, the one, the promised one, the one that's supposed to occupy the throne for David forever. It's going to be killed? The, prom the Messiah? And will appear to have accomplished nothing? Where is this going? Keep in mind, this is 538 B.C., 538 years before Christ the Messiah. So there's a lot of questions connected with this. The seven weeks of years and the 62 weeks of years, are they like solar years or you know, like what we go by today? You know, solar years, five days in a year. Or are they lunar years like what they went back by back then? Uh, a lunar year is 12 months of exactly 30 days or, or 360 days. We, we know there are a total of 483 of these because seven times seven, 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 seven times seven is 49, and 62 times seven is 434. So 434 plus 49 is 483. But exactly what unit of time do they refer to? Another question is, which decree to, be, uh, to rebuild Jerusalem is this? Because there were several, according to historical records, there were several decrees. So who's de who decreed it, and, and when was the decree? And yet another question is specifically what is meant by the coming of the anointed one. By his coming, does that mean his birth? Does that mean the beginning of his public ministry or something else? Well, when you look at what actually unfolded in history, the Persian king Artaxerxes issued a decree to Nehemiah on March 5th, 444 BC. You're going, where is he going with this? This is a lot of math for a Sunday morning. This is cool. Stay with me here. And then we're going to circle back to what we started with. Uh, so March 5th, 444 BC, an issue, a decree is issued to Nehemiah uh, to begin rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. So, taking that as a starting date and counting a total of 483 years, which is what they used back there, lunar years uh, they used back then, you get the date March 30th, AD 33. Which wouldn't you know coincidentally falls right in the middle of a very narrow date range historians have estimated Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem when that took place. March 30th, A.D. 33. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? But this is just one of over 300 predictions, specific prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. Do you know what the odds are of somebody fulfilling that one prediction? 
Do you know what the odds are of, of any one person fulfilling 300 of such predictions from the Old Testament? Do you know what the odds are? N neither do I. But, but I know that they are astronomical. Astronomical. Now, keep in mind that prior to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he had not publicly declared himself to be the Messiah. He had done so privately, declared himself to be the Messiah among his closest followers, but he always told them not to tell anyone. And you, you've always wondered why he'd say that, haven't you? Perhaps this is why he was waiting for this day, the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, to publicly reveal to the world that he was the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the one foretold in scriptures, the savior, the rescuer, the one who would sit on David's throne forever and ever. God is never late. He's never early either. He is always right on time. And this passage, this whole thing illustrates that. Now, so let's fast forward to that event. Let's look in the New Testament, 483 lunar years from the time recorded in the book of Daniel. Let's read Matthew's written account of the life and teachings of Jesus about this event. Chapter 21. Quite possibly, we're looking at the date, March 30th, A.D. 33. Matthew records this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say the Lord needs them, and it, he will send them right away. Then Matthew adds this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, uh, and this is, this is a yet another Old Testament prophecy that Jesus fulfilled, predicted hundreds of years earlier, this one by the prophet Zechariah, whose name, by the way, means God has remembered. God has remembered. Here's Zechariah's prophecy that Matthew quotes. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And Matthew says this, a very large crowd, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. Uh, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This event took place during the Jews' biggest festival of the year, the Passover festival. Jews would come from all over the known world to, to, to Jerusalem to, to get in on this 
festivals. Historians have estimated that there were more than two and a half million people in Jerusalem every year for this festival. So the city is packed. It's crawling with people. And outside of the city in the surrounding hillside, we're covered with tents and wagons and people uh, camping out. Um, for Christians, this Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem marks the beginning of Holy Week, something that has come to be known as Holy Week. And a lot goes down during Holy Week. In just one week's time, Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem like the king that he is to the praises and accolades of the crowds, but immediately upon entering the city, he has a run-in with the authorities and will have many more such run-ins over the next several days, intense confrontations with the corrupt mob that is uh, running uh, things in Jerusalem. He's going to celebrate the Passover meal with his closest followers. That same night, he's going to be betrayed by one of those followers. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be given a mock trial. And due to an intense propaganda campaign launched by the corrupt authorities containing distortions and outright lies, the masses who were literally singing his praises just days earlier are going to turn and accuse him and curse him and call for his execution. He's going to be beaten. He's going to stand trial before the Roman government and the regional king, a mock trial. He's going to be executed as a criminal. His followers are going to scatter. And then finally, he's going to become alive again. All this happens in one week's time. On this day, he's riding into Jerusalem as a king. One week from that day, he's rising again from the dead after being executed. Matthew records that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, which was the way kings would often enter the city in those days. If it was a hostile city and the king and his army had laid siege to that city and had conquered that city, the king would ride into the city victoriously, but on a horse. But if this king was coming into a city in peace, the king would ride in on a donkey. This is how Jesus rode into Jerusalem, on the back of a donkey, in peace. Matthew records that a very large crowd, we know that two and a half million people are in Jerusalem, a very large crowd was singing and shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna literally means save us. But this was not a spiritual statement. The crowds were not asking to be saved from their sins. This was a political statement. Even though they were actually quoting from the Psalms by saying this, Psalm 118, what they were shouting was not save us from our sins. They were shouting save us from Rome. Save us from our political foes. Hosanna to the son of David, to the, to the one who was foretold to occupy David's throne forever and and. and finally free them from their political oppress oppressors. But it would soon become obvious to everyone that that's not what Jesus came to do, to free them from Rome, 
which is why the crowds were so easily swayed and convinced to turn on him and demand his execution. See, Jesus didn't come to deliver them from Rome. He came to do something far more significant. He came to do something far more far-reaching, more enduring, far more powerful and consequential. But they couldn't see it. He came to, to save them from something far more destructive. He came to save them from themselves. But they couldn't see it because their hope was in a political agenda. They were looking for hope from that which could not give them hope. And so they wound up rejecting Jesus, the one who promised them living water, the one who said a river of living water would spring up from within you. They rejected the fountain of life and decided instead to dig, once again, cisterns of their own making, cisterns that could hold no water, broken cisterns. Where's your team? Why don't you guys come back up? We need to ask ourselves today, are we putting our hope in things that cannot really provide us with hope? Are we looking for life and peace in things that cannot deliver life and peace? Are we trying to dig our own cisterns? Perhaps by means of material acquisition or, or you know, you know get, getting the right house or the right car, the right amount of stuff. Perhaps, you know, getting, getting to a place of, of economic and material security. Or maybe it's a different kind of acquisition, the acquisition of respect or esteem, you know, having the right people notice you, give you approval and, and validation. Or maybe it's in achievement or, or perhaps just sensual pleasure. Or maybe you're looking for hope. Maybe you're looking for life and peace in a political agenda or a political system. If you can just get the right person in places of power, the right policies in place. Listen, and you know this, and I'm here to remind you, our hope is not dependent on who's in the White House. Right? <laughs> Regardless of who occupies the White House, we know who occupies the throne. We know who the King of Kings is, don't we? The peace that Jesus offers you and me is a peace that can be possessed and experienced in abundance no matter what's going on politically or culturally or economically or environmentally. Some of you have been a Jesus follower for years, perhaps your whole life, and you're still not convinced. You're skeptical. You still don't quite believe yet. And so you still have your hope rooted in things that cannot provide you with hope. As history bears out over and over and over again. The Holy Spirit is nudging you today and convicting you right now. Turn around. Change your heart, change your mind, repent, and embrace the kingdom of God, which is not of this world. It's not of this world. 
it, it, it's a spiritual kingdom. Embrace the kingdom of God and its king, Jesus the Messiah, the promised one, the king of kings, as your Lord and Savior today. God doesn't promise, has not promised us how things are going to go politically or economically or materially or anything related to this world. He actually has promised. He said it's all, it's all one day. It's all going to pass away. It's all going to unravel. It's all going to fall apart. He's made that promise to you. Why are you putting your hope in those things? But he's made another promise, and that is when you live in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter what's going on in the kingdoms of this world. He's given you a peace or offering you a peace that passes understanding. He's offering you, offering you living water that will bubble up within you in your spirit. Spiritual in nature. We're going to receive communion today, which is our custom here at Hope Community Church. The first Sunday of every month, we, we uh, celebrate communion together. And it's it's a uh, commemoration of what Jesus did during Holy Week. Uh, on Sunday, he, he entered Jerusalem as the arriving king. Five days later, on Thursday, uh, he would celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples, and he would turn that meal into something of enormous significance. We're going to receive that uh, together in just a minute. But um, we're going to sing part of a worship song first, and I'll be back in just a moment. <laughs> 